Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to study your word. We ask that you enlighten us by it and strengthen us, encourage us by your word that you recorded thousands of years ago that we might study it today in the year 2022 and be edified by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we saw chapter 13 of the book of 1 Samuel, where Saul overstepped his authority at the city of Gilgal. Two years before that event at Gilgal, back in chapter 10, Samuel had anointed Saul. And Samuel had established a future meeting date. Back in chapter 10, Samuel, when he anointed Saul, said, we're going to meet at Gilgal. And that Gilgal pre-established meeting happened in chapter 13. And in chapter 10, when Saul was anointed by Samuel, and Samuel said, we're going to meet at Gilgal, Samuel said, wait for me seven days, and then I will offer the sacrifices. But as we saw last time in chapter 13, when that pre-established date came, Saul was in a pickle, and Saul was in this big state of anxiety because the Philistine army had gathered with huge numbers. The Philistine army was moving towards the Israelites, and so Saul's army started to just fade away and dissipate. And so Saul gets anxious, and he's nervous, and Samuel's late, which makes him really, really nervous because his army's fading away. So Saul says, I have to do something. And Saul then oversteps his bounds and takes matters into his own hands, and he acts when he shouldn't act. He offers the sacrifices that Samuel was to offer because Samuel was late, and Saul knows that there is value in religious activities. It's just Saul treated the religious activities as if they were good luck charms. I got to do this thing. We got to sacrifice the animals. Saul, Samuel's not here on time. We got to do this thing. We got to sacrifice the animals. So then God will give us favor. It's just like a good luck charm, like the old rabbit's, foots and, rabbit's feet. And then off we go. Remember people used to have on their, on their keychains a little rabbit's foot? Because that's where the mojo was. That's where the good luck was. And that's how the king treats the sacrifices that God required under the law. Samuel's late, I got to do something, and then God disciplines, punishes Saul through Samuel. The punishment was twofold. It was a long-term punishment and a short-term punishment, as we saw last time. Samuel informed Saul that his kingdom would not endure, and that instead God would raise up one who was a man after his own heart, meaning a man who would pursue the will of God. That was a reference to David, although David's name was not specifically mentioned in chapter 13. It won't be mentioned for a few more chapters. It was a real shame that Saul's kingdom would not endure because his oldest son, Jonathan, was a godly man, a godly leader. That was the long-term punishment, that Saul's kingdom would not endure. The short-term punishment was that Saul's army would just fizzle out, would fall apart, because we saw in, in chapter 2 of verse of excuse me, verse 2 of chapter 13 last time, that his army started out at 3,000 men. But by the time the chapter was over, it was down to 600. That's the background. That's the context for chapter 14, which we will 
begin this evening. And what we're going to see this evening is that Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, is not like his father. Jonathan is a man of courage. Jonathan is a man of faith in the Lord. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 14. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Probably the reason Jonathan didn't tell his father is because he was concerned that his father was going to nix the plan and say, No, you can't do this. Keep reading in verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. As in the prior chapter, as in chapter 13, Jonathan is the one who goes on the offensive against the Philistines. We saw that in chapter 13, verse 3, where Jonathan goes out and he attacks the Philistines at the town of Gibeah. Same way as in chapter 13, we have in chapter 14, Jonathan goes on the offensive while Saul is on the defense, while Saul is safe and secure, in this case under the pomegranate tree, Jonathan goes out and attacks the enemy. When Saul should be acting, he doesn't act. And when Saul shouldn't be acting, he acts. God had called Saul to free Israel from the Philistines. This was back in chapter 9, God's words to Samuel in chapter 9, verse 16, where God said, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall appoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. God's will for Saul was that he liberate Israel from the Philistine oppression. But Saul is lukewarm and just kind of ho-hum about God's will. So he will wait for others to show the initiative like his own son. Keep reading in verse 3. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Ahijah was wearing an ephod, it says. We've studied the ephod before. The ephod is this elegant, beautiful, almost like, a, like an, uh, an apron, a very sophisticated. And the ephod, in the ephod were the, were the, the, the two, I'm not going to call them dice, but they were like lots. There, there, there were two things that the, that the high priest would, would throw, and it would be the process by which the high priest would consult God. They were called the Urim and the Thummim. And so they were, they were inside the ephod, inside the apron. The, the high priest would take them out and would cast these lots. And that was a way ordained in the law by which the high priest would receive an answer from God. Very different than the way the pagans would cast lots so that Baal or the Ashtaroth would give them some sort of, some sort of spiritual knowledge. This was something that was ordained in the law. And... What we're seeing is that Saul, and, and as, as this chapter unfolds, we'll see that Saul was consulting Ahijah to get the counsel of God through the high priest. Now, 
What we see in this verse here, in verse 3, is the genealogy, the lineage of Ahijah. It's connecting him to the high priest Eli from the beginning of the book. You remember Eli. Eli was the, the father of the two corrupt priests, Hophni and Phinehas. And these were godless men. Eli doesn't correct his two sons. Eli actually participates in a little bit of their, their corruption. And so God punished Eli by, because he failed to corrupt, to correct his sons. He punished Eli by cutting off, by declaring that he would cut off Eli's high priestly line. That will come a little later. But what we're seeing is the certainty of God's judgment the writer of 1 Samuel is showing us that Ahijah is tied genealogically to Eli, and he sh- the, the writer of 1 Samuel is showing us that Saul, whose reign is already doomed, God has already said in, in chapter 13 that your reign is going to be finished. Your kingdom will come to an end. Saul, whose reign is already doomed, is aligned with the high priest whose line is likewise already doomed. God's judgment has been issued on both, and both will go defunct. What is interesting is that Saul doesn't go to Samuel. Samuel's in the same town, and this is not like a New York City where there's 20 million people. This is in the town of Gibeah. We know that Samuel is in Gibeah from chapter 13, verse 15, but Saul doesn't go to Samuel. Saul goes to Ahijah, Ahijah, and he aligns himself with the high priest who we already know his line will be defunct. Look at the genealogy in verse 3. Do you see anything strange about the genealogy tracing Ahijah back up the line to Eli? Look at that genealogy. There's something weird about this genealogy. Normally a genealogy says... This guy was the son of this guy who was the son of this guy who was the son of this guy who was the son of this guy. You get all of that, but then you get an uncle, right? You get Ichabod. Why is Ichabod in there? The brother. Why is Ichabod in this genealogy who is not in the actual line? He's the brother of Ahitub. Ichabod is the son of Phinehas, just like Ahitub is the son of Phinehas. You get an uncle in this line is my point. Why do we get the uncle? Why is this sort of genealogy different than the other genealogies? I think the writer of 1 Samuel is making a point here. He's reminding us of the certainty of God's judgment. You remember Ichabod. Ichabod, the name Ichabod means no one names their kid Ichabod. There's a reason for that. I mean, I know we've got the old literature in in English literature, but Ichabod means the glory's gone. The glory has left. And you remember when Ichabod was born in 1 Samuel 4, Phinehas' wife, God kills Eli, Phinehas, and Hophni, the corrupt ones. And on the day that Phinehas and Hophni are killed and Eli dies, Eli falls over and breaks his neck when he learns that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. The unimaginable has happened. The Ark of the Covenant has been taken by the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas are killed. Eli dies when he learns of it. And so the wife of Phinehas in chapter 4, 
she gives birth. She knows that her husband's dead. She knows that her father-in-law's dead. She knows that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. She gives birth to her son, and she names him Ichabod because the glory has left. The glory of God has left Israel. And then she herself dies. What we're getting is the writer of for Samuel is tying the high priest to Ichabod, to Eli. He's tying the high priest that Saul has aligned himself with because Saul is not interested in going to Samuel, who's there in the town with him in Gibeah. The writer of for Samuel is tying Saul's kingdom, which is certain to be destroyed, with the priestly line of Eli through this high priest, his descendant, which is also certain to be destroyed. That's who Saul has gone for the consultation as to what the Lord has to say. Keep reading in verse 4 of chapter 14. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozaz and the name of the other Sene. The one crag rose on the north opposite Michmash and the other on the south opposite Geba. What we're getting here is a very difficult route that Jonathan takes. He comes to, Jonathan is down here in Gibeah. Chapter 13 was his assault on Geba. And then you had the, the disaster, everybody scatters. The army, the Israelite army scatters. The, the Philistines regroup and they, they muster a huge army at Michmash. And then Saul and his 600 gather back at the capital, Gibeah where Samuel is also, but Saul isn't consulting Samuel. He's consulting the high priest. So Jonathan, we're seeing in our verse right here, Jonathan leads an army of two, himself and his his armor-bearer, and they go this way. They go, we'll see as as this chapter unfolds, they go to this mountain pass here between the two rocky crags of Bozes and Senna, and it's a very difficult ascent. He's going over one cliff and then climbing up another. He's doing this to have some semblance of surprise. It's not going to be a whole lot of surprise because it's in the middle of the day. But he's doing this because the Philistines will not expect the Israelites to come, in this case two Israelites, to come from that direction. Let's keep reading in verse 6. Then Jonathan, Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Circumcision was the sign of which covenant? Anybody remember? The Abrahamic covenant, that's right. Sabbath observance is the, is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so when you hear the Israelites say, like, like young David, which we will see in a few chapters, who is this uncircumcised Philistine as the teenager stands before the giant, the Philistine, these are not words of endearment. These are words of indictment. When the Israelites refer to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised, there, it's a way of referring to the unbelieving Gentiles, in this case, the Philistines. Keep reading in verse 6. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, 
for the Lord is not restrained. This is Jonathan speaking to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Here we see Jonathan's great faith. He trusts that God will give victory. He knows that God's will is for Israel to be liberated from the Philistines. We just saw that in chapter 9, verse 16, from God's words to Samuel. But he doesn't know the details. Jonathan doesn't know the details of how God's will is to be executed. So he says, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will work for us in this event that we're pursuing here. This reminds us of Mordecai's words to Queen Esther. You remember Mordecai and Esther and Haman in the book of Esther, where Haman seeks to exterminate all the Jews, and he he does this plot And he gets the king of Persia to issue the order that all the Jews will be murdered on this day certain in the future, in the not too distant future. And so Mordecai, a Jew, goes to Esther, who is Jewish, and she's also the queen. She's married to the Persian king. And Mordecai urges Esther to approach the king. And he says this, if you remain in Esther 4.14, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. Then Mordecai says to Esther, And who knows? Not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai knows that God's plan, of course, is not for the Jews to be exterminated by Haman, but he doesn't know the details of God's plan. So he uses words to Esther that says, who knows? You may be in a position for this exact reason. He doesn't know the details of God's plan, but he knows that a Jewess is in a position of authority and power because she is married to the Persian kings, and he knows that she can protect the Jews. Likewise, for Jonathan, he doesn't know the details of God's plan, but he does know the general statement of God's plan that it is God's plan that, that Israel be freed of the yoke of the Philistines. And Jonathan knows that he's a soldier. Jonathan knows that he has the skills, at least skills in some sense, to execute that general plan from God. This is a great example for us. God doesn't give us the details of the plan. Raise your hand if God's ever sent you an email or a text it says, I want you to do this, and I want, you, I want you to go to this school, and I want you to marry this person, and I want you to work at this job for seven years, and then that job for 15 years, and then I want you to work at this, and then retire at this location, and then I want you to make this. Inve-. No, that's not how God works. God doesn't treat us like we're five-year-olds. That's how you talk to a five-year-old. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want. He treats us like we're big boys and girls. Right? He gives us, he respects the freedom that he has given us. He gives us broad parameters, a general statement about his will, that we exist to honor God. And then he provides for us salvation. He provides for us his word. He provides for us guidance through the filling of the Holy Spirit. General will of God, not detailed will of God. He gives us the discretion as to how to execute the will of God 
consistent with a manner that honors him. Discretion, how to execute the broad principles of the will of God in a manner that serves him and serves his people. That's what Jonathan is doing. He trusts that God will give victory regardless of the odds. It reminds us of Gideon with his little army of 300 that God whittled down. And Gideon says, is this enough? Have you whittled it down enough? Nope, too big. You have thousands? Too big. Smaller, 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 smaller. Oh, 300? That works. And then God sends Gideon with his little army of 300 to defeat an army of 135,000 invaders into Israel. But as much as this is similar to Gideon, it's actually very different than Gideon. Because Jonathan's faith is much stronger than Gideon's faith. Remember, Gideon demanded signs because Gideon really didn't trust God. Gideon put God to the test. Gideon comes up with these strange tests for God. Okay, God, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to put a fleece down there. You know a fleece, like a fleece sweater. I'm going to put a fleece down there, and what I want you to do is make everything around the fleece. When the dew comes, make everything around the fleece. Make the ground wet, but the fleece dry. And so God condescends, and in his mercy, he grants Gideon's request. And Gideon says, uh, how about one more? And the next day, Gideon flips it and says, okay, I want the dew to be on the fleece, but everything around the fleece, everything on the ground, I want that to be wet, excuse me, dry. And God again condescends, even though Gideon is actually distrusting God with each of these requests, but God grants those signs to Gideon in his mercy. This is not Gideon. Jonathan isn't testing God. He's not putting God to the test. You know, when you put God to the test, when you see the language in the Scripture, He put God to the test. That's not a good thing. That's insisting that God show you his faithfulness on your terms as if you were God. That's what Gideon did, and yet God in his mercy granted Gideon's request. That's not what we're seeing with Jonathan. Jonathan is asking God, as we will see in a moment, he's asking God for a sign, not because he distrusts God, but because he wants to do God's will. Maybe Jonathan remembered Joshua how Joshua had led Israel to capture the land of promise against much, much greater forces than the Israelite army. Remember Joshua's farewell address to the nation in Joshua 23, verse 8, where he said, But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men put to flight a thousand For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. Jonathan knows that it is the Lord who does the fighting. Jonathan knows that the Lord will fight for him. He just doesn't know exactly how the Lord's going to do it. Keep reading in verse 7. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Turn yourself and and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. Verse 10, But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. Here Jonathan seeks a sign, not the way Gideon sought a sign, testing God. He's not distrusting God here. But Jonathan wants to know the manner in which God wants him to fulfill his will. 
that Israel be liberated from the Philistines. So Jonathan says, perhaps this is a sign. Jonathan wants a sign from God as to how he's supposed to attack the enemy. This is a very dangerous move. This is, you might say, a foolhardy move. Two men going up against the garrison of the enemy. I mean, this isn't two men, this isn't two Navy SEALs from a mile and a half away with their Navy, Navy SEAL sniper rifles where no one knows that they're there. This is close, intimate, hand-to-hand personal combat, and two men are going up against the garrison. You'd say this is foolhardy if all you were relying on is the Lord. This, if, if you were not relying on the Lord. But they're relying on the Lord. And so this strategy, which to the average person makes zero sense for Jonathan and his armor bearer, it makes perfect sense because they're relying on the Lord. Basically, what Jonathan says is, if they come to us, we're going to stand up out of our positions. And if they come to us, we're going to fight where we stand. If they call us to them, then we're going to charge the enemy. Keep reading in verse 11. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. You remember in verse 13, the Israelites had been hiding in caves, it says, in cliffs, in pits, and in other areas because the Israelites were terrified of the Philistine army. So these Philistines, as they see these two Israelites marching towards them, Jonathan with his armor bearer, they just assume these are two Israelites who have just crawled out of their pit. Keep reading in verse 12. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will tell you something. This is, this, these are kind of words of mocking. Come up to us and we'll tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. This is Jonathan's fourth statement of faith. Verse 6, he said, perhaps the Lord will work for us. Also in verse 6, he said, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. In verse 10, he said, the Lord has given them into our hands. And here in verse 12, he says, the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. His faith is in the Almighty One, the Almighty One who gives him courage to face impossible odds because he knows that God is in charge Do you remember the words of the priest Jehaziel? The priest Jehaziel. Anybody remember those words? When he stands before the king, King Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom of Judah. King Jehoshaphat and the people are terrified because the the neighboring armies are invading Judah. And so Jehoshaphat, a godly king, cries out to God. And the people who are just as fearful, they also cry out to God. And so God sends his priest to deliver a message to the king. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 14, we're told that in the midst of the assembly, the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, meaning they're all there praying to God, and the spirit just comes upon the priest. Verse 15, and he said, this is the priest speaking God's words, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says Yahweh to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Jonathan knows this. The battle is not Jonathan's, it's God's. The battle is not ours, 
It's God's. You see a culture that is decaying day by day or minute by minute? Yes, we do. Do we get fired up about that? I'll speak for myself. Yes, I do. But we sin if we forget that the battle is the Lord's. It's not our battle. That doesn't mean that we're entirely passive and we just sit there in our lazy boy chair and say, ah. No, we have a responsibility to obey God. We have a responsibility, for example, to vote. We have a responsibility to give the gospel. We have the responsibility to study the word. But we always must remember that this is not our battle. This is God's battle. And God showed that in the case of Jehoshaphat, it was his battle. So with the king, King Jehoshaphat, what God did is, as he had done on other occasions, he just had the enemy kill each other. That's an easy fix, right? And so Jehoshaphat and Jerusalem and the southern kingdom are spared because God had the enemy kill one another. Jonathan trusts that the battle is the Lord's, and so he has courage to serve God in the face of great, great danger. Keep reading in verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him, and they fell before Jonathan, meaning he struck the enemy. And his armor bearer put some to death after him. Verse 14, that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land. That's the first slaughter of Jonathan. He did more in taking out the enemy. Now you see this language about a half furrow of an acre of land. The best way to describe how much land this is is it's half the amount of land that a team of oxen could plow in one day. And so it's a fair amount of land for two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer, to engage in this hand-to-hand combat. Keep reading in verse 15. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled. These are the Philistines who are trembling. And the earth quaked so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. That's the multitude of the Philistines. Apparently God sent an earthquake to help Jonathan and his armor bearer. That's why you see this language in verse 15 about the earth quaked. Through the faith and courage of two lone soldiers, God reversed the status quo. Back in chapter 13, the Israelite army was in panic In the face of the Philistines, chapter 13, verse 7, the people followed Saul trembling. Now in chapter 14, the writer ascribes the same Hebrew word for trembling, but this time it's not to the Israelites, it's to the Philistines, chapter 14, verse 15, and there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. Here's the deal. God controls history. God controls history, and he does it through his faithful servants. God is in absolute control, being the sovereign, not of this nation, but of all the nations, not of this planet, but of all the planets, not of this universe, but of all the universes. God is the sovereign, and he controls human history, and he does it through his agents, through his willing agents, his faithful servants. Keep reading in verse 17. 
Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Saul knows that the confusion in the Philistine camp that his watchmen have informed him of, because all of these activities are within just a few miles of each other. All of these little towns that we saw just a moment ago are within a few miles of each other, four or five miles. And so here we have Saul's troops who have informed him that there's this big disarray, this big disturbance in the Philistine camp. Saul knows that that's a, that's a product of some military action, but he doesn't know what it was. He doesn't know which of his soldiers engaged in this work. Saul is so disengaged that he is clueless about a special operations mission. He doesn't even know that the mission was executed by his own soldiers, let alone his own son. In fact, he doesn't know his son is even missing. He doesn't know that the crown prince is missing. The heir to the throne, Saul doesn't even know that he's not there. I say he's the crown prince and he's the heir to the throne because I recognize in chapter 13, God has said Saul's kingdom has, is not going to endure, but David hasn't even been anointed yet. So as far as everybody knows, Jonathan is the crown prince. And so what Saul has to do to find out who are his soldiers that went off on this special operations mission, to even find out where his son is, He's got to muster the whole army. That's what we're seeing in verse 17 when they count them, when they list them. He assembles. That, that's that's the, the, the gist of the Hebrew verb there. They're assembling the army. They're mustering the army in order to figure out who's not there, in order for Saul to learn that his son's not there. This is the second time that Jonathan has put his life on the line in obedience to God. In chapter 13, he stormed the garrison at Geba. And now he's storming the troops after he went through the mountain passes. Despite Jonathan's position of royalty and position of authority, he puts his life at risk in order to do his duty. He's a great leader. Often people in power don't have that leadership trait. Often people in authority lead from the rear, right? They're in the rear with the gear. And here we have a leader who leads from the front. Jonathan is more concerned about his duty than his personal risk. God has given leaders like that to our nation before. Take, for example, the son of one of our presidents, the son of Teddy Roosevelt, the oldest son of Teddy Roosevelt. His name was Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., the oldest American soldier to plant his feet on D-Day in the attack on Normandy and the highest-ranking officer. He had to make special request, which was initially denied, that he could land with the troops on the attack. And then he requests again, and he lays out all his points. And so finally his superior officer, a two-star, grants his request, and he gets off the landing vehicle with two things in his hands, a cane and a pistol. He leads his troops, the 4th Infantry Division, on Utah Beach and storms the beach. And his Medal of Honor citation reads like this. 
He repeatedly led groups from the beach over the seawall and established them inland. His valor, courage, and presence in the very front of the attack and his complete unconcern at being under heavy fire inspired the troops to heights of enthusiasm and self-sacrifice. Although the enemy had the beach under constant direct fire, Brigadier General Roosevelt moved from one locality to another, rallying men around him, directed and personally led them against the enemy. Under his seasoned, precise, calm, and unfaltering leadership, assault troops reduced the beach strong points and rapidly moved inland with minimum casualties. He thus, con- thus contributed substantially to the, the successful establishment of the beachhead in France. Some called the general Theodore Roosevelt's the last of his rough riders. God gives nations leaders like that, and it's an act of mercy and grace. He gave us leaders like Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt Jr., the oldest son of Teddy Roosevelt, of a president. I have to tell you, there are certain countries, like in Latin America, unthinkable. No, 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 no. The kids of the president, they're off someplace safe, protected, no risk for them. And so here we have the oldest son of the king who says God has issued his will to us. He's made it clear that we are to free ourselves from the yoke of the Philistines. And that, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. That's what we have here with a Jonathan. It's no wonder that Jonathan and David will be great friends when David comes on the scene. Keep reading in verse 18. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. Like in chapter 13, Saul is more interested in religious ritual than in obedience to God. He's wondering, hmm, should I attack the Philistines? Should I not? They're in a total, their camp is in a total state of disarray. My son is fighting by himself with his armor bearer, assaulting them. Hmm, what do I do? What do I do? Maybe it's time to pray. That's what Saul is doing here, as we'll see in a moment. He wants the ark to be there, the ark of God to be there, so that he can pray in the presence of the ark, because he treats the things of God like prayer and the ark of the covenant like good luck charms that will guarantee success. When it comes to prayer, of course, the scripture says to pray always. That doesn't mean every second of every minute of every hour of every day. There's a time for prayer, and there's a time for action. But Saul acts when he shouldn't act and fails to act when he should act. Now, I'm not saying that in the time of action you can't be praying also. You can be saying, help me, when you're, you're in the middle of a crisis, and you should. But there's a time for everything under heaven. And there's a time for prayer, and there's a time to act. Right? It would have been absurd if Brigadier General Roosevelt, when he got on the beach, had gathered the GIs and say, stop, let's all take a knee here on the sand while the bullets are whizzing by him and say, we're going to have a prayer meeting. He would have been court-martialed rightly on the spot. But that's what Saul is doing. 
Saul wants the high priest to have this prayer meeting with him and have the Ark of the Covenant present so that he can have some good luck with the Ark. It wasn't time to have a prayer meeting. It was a time for Saul to gather the troops and to attack the Philistines. And he gets it. He does get it in the next verse. Look at verse 19. While Saul talked to the priest, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. This is probably a reference to the Urim and the Thummim. Probably the priest had his hand in the ephod. He Saul wanted an answer, a request from God. He's asking the high priest to, to make a request from God. What do I do? Do I attack? Do I not attack? Do I sit here on my hands? What do I do? What do I do? He's wringing his hands. And so he probably has the high priest with his hand in the, in the ephod. And then Saul says, withdraw your hand. Don't take out the Urim and the Thummim. I withdraw my request. I now know what to do. It's time to attack. I get it now. Verse 20 says this, Then Saul said, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, his fellow, and there was great confusion. Well, guess what God did? He did the same thing that he did with Jehoshaphat. He did the same thing that he did with Gideon. With Gideon, God gave victory to Gideon because he had the opposing armies killing each other or I, I should say, the, opposing, the, the troops of the opposing army, when Gideon attacked at, in, in, in the evening under cover of darkness that God told him to, and he scared the 135,000 with his army of 300, that invading army thought that they were being attacked, so they started killing each other. That's Gideon. Same thing with Jehoshaphat. God moved the opposing army to kill each other. We have the same thing having, happening here with the Philistines in verse 20 because the battle is the Lord's. The Lord is in charge always. God caused the Philistines to attack, attack each other as he did on other occasions in Israel's history. Look at verse 21. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. We have two groups. We have two groups in these verses. Two groups of deserters those who deserted the Israelite army. One group were traitors. They were treasonous. They joined the Philistines to fight against the Israelites. That's verse 21. The other group is verse 22, just deserters of the Israelite army who simply hid from the Philistines. Saul allows both groups to rejoin his army. That's odd. That's especially odd with respect to the treasonous group, the traitors. That's not typically what you do in wartime with traitors who joined the other army and were fighting against you. Saul has a wisdom issue, and we'll see more of this when we're together next time. But for now, we'll just leave it at that. Look at verse 23. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beth Aven. 
Sure enough, God did what Jonathan relied on the Lord to do. Jonathan trusted in the Lord to deliver Israel, and that's what the Lord did. He did it through his servant, Jonathan, not through Saul, but through Jonathan. Obedience always precedes blessing, and God values obedience more than religious ritual. Let me say that again. God values obedience more than religious ritual. Obedience precedes blessing, and God values obedience over religious ritual. I'm not saying that religious ritual is wrong. I'm not saying religious activities are wrong. No, God calls us to go to church. You shall not forsake the congrega- congregation of yourselves, the congregating of yourselves, the uh, book of Hebrews. No, God calls us to go to church. God calls us to study His Word. God calls us to pray. God calls us to be baptized. That's your ritual. God calls us to participate in the communion table. That's a ritual. But ritual without reality is meaningless. And so we have to have the reality of submission to God, humility, and obedience to God. He values obedience over outward religious activities. Let's end with that tonight. We'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us by it. We ask that you give us safe travels home. We also ask for rain. We thank you for the rain that we've gotten And we ask that you give us more. You know that we need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.